0: Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. We all know that what we eat matters. And most of us make periodic or regular attempts to eat better. And when we do, we tend to do it because of how it affects our bodies. So we think of our diet in terms of losing weight or a range of other physical conditions. But much less talked about is the impact of our diet on our mind and our mental health and well-being. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. The food brain connection and how better eating can lead to better mental health and well-being. This is the Work Well podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things wellbeing. I'm here with Tess Bredenson. She's the Cognitive Nutrition Director at Thrive. She's also the founder of SIA Health. She works with clients internationally through one-on-one online consultations, developing and coaching them to adopt programs customized to their individual risk factors. Tess, welcome to the show.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course. So I want to learn about you. Tell us about yourself and then tell me how you became passionate about nutrition.
1: Absolutely. So like most kids born and raised in the U.S., I grew up on a very typical, you could call it typical, you could call it standard American diet, right? So we had ramen noodles was an absolute staple of our household Pizza, right? Pizza Fridays were a non-negotiable. Love pizza Fridays, even to this day. Of course. Who <laughs> doesn't love pizza Fridays? Yeah. Um, I used to actually joke with my, my parents that I had two stomachs. So one was for meals and the other was for dessert. So if I didn't want to finish my dinner, it didn't mean that I you know, didn't want to have ice cream after. I still needed to fill up that other stomach. So that was kind of the context. You were
0: clever from an early age. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. No, when it comes to ice cream, <laughs> I I, uh, I, know how to get what I want. That's for sure. Love it. So that was kind of the background of, you know, a very, I would say, pretty standard diet. We didn't talk about nutrition a lot. And when I was around seven, my mom, who is this brilliant physician, she, you know, was lean and physically fit. Um, when she was 43, she was diagnosed with breast cancer Mm. and it was a really, uh, I would say a very confusing time as a seven year old, you know, she outwardly, her outward appearance, appearance was, you know, that of the epitome of health, right. But then to, you know, to try to reconcile that with her being sick was very confusing to me. Um, you know, society, I think, tends to conflate physical fitness or weight, right? The number on the scale with true health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now I know, now I've learned that health is so much more than just that, so much more than just this outward appearance. But at the time, it was, you know, really troubling trying to reconcile that. And I think it planted the seed, I think, later on, I realized that is what planted a seed of Mm -hmm. this, Kind of intense, almost desperate curiosity of like, what is going on here? What are the things within our control that can help or limit our health and our longevity? Um, and then it was on, you know, later on um, that I started really getting into the um, the education of it. So a friend of mine gave me the China study, which is you know, it looks at The effect of casein, which is a protein found in milk, Mm -hmm. on tumor growth, and this idea that what you ate could impact uh, cancer growth—I mean, that that was flooring to me at that time. And from there, it was kind of, uh, you know, I kind of uh, dove in headfirst. So looking at the biochemistry of it, looking at the socioeconomics of food. Um, I mean, the political history of these farm bills. Like I got really into Earl Butts in the 1973 farm bill. I just found everything really fascinating. I just wanted to unpack it all. Um, but it was also kind of you know necessary at that point in time. Now I have all this new information in this education. Um, and yet I still had this taste And this love for ice cream and pizza and pancakes and all the good stuff that we all love today still. Um, and so I think, yes, I have a passion for nutrition and kind of, you know, using tool, using food as a tool to optimize true health. I want to call it, you know, true health or whole health, but I also want to come at it from this place of deep understanding that food is so much more than just food, right? Food is, tradition food is culture Mm -hmm. um you know food is joy food is family so that i think is where i i I focus in my practice and my work at thrive is you know i like i like to tell my clients we draw this like three circle venn diagram one circle has you know your biomarker so it has like you know hemoglobin a1c and fasting glucose fasting insulin etc one circle has your genetics and then the other has your lifestyle and your your preferences, and and you know what you like to eat on a daily basis, what your family likes to eat, uh, and I think our job is to identify that intersection, right? That sweet spot in the middle. That's where you know where that's where the magic happens.
0: Yeah, I I mean. <laughs> First of all, thank you. So, so, so much of that resonates with me on a very personal mm-hmm. level. I don't yeah. know if you know, but I was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 40.
1: Um, I didn't know that.
0: Yes. Very similarly, probably in the best physical shape of my life, doing yeah. everything you know that they quote unquote say you should do to kind of keep cancer away. Mm-hmm. Um, no family history. Mm. Um, obviously, with the family history, you later on learn that it's a very small percentage of people that have breast cancer. Um, that actually have a family history. But yeah, and, and it's interesting mm-hmm. that because I really, I'm not a nutritionist, but I dove into all of those same things to especially during my treatment to kind of understand like, okay, what are the things that I can boost do to boost my immunity? What are the things that I can do to help prevent this or, you know, and even if it just helped a little bit, it, um, but I kind of, in a way became very obsessive about it during my treatment and have carried many of those learnings and behaviors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think sometimes those moments of, of greatest challenge provoke this, you know, this intense, uh, in intrigue or curiosity, um, that otherwise we wouldn't have looked under that rock, we wouldn't have explored this this path, um, and and we are my family is similar, so we do not, my mom does not have the BRCA gene or mutations, yeah. mm-hmm. um, neither do my sister, neither do I, and yet, um, you know, it, it does run in our family yeah. um, for for whatever reason, and so nutrition, of course, it's not um we would i would be remiss if it said this is this is the answer it lies only with the nutrition of course absolutely. it's much more complex than that and yet nutrition we would also be you know um remiss to say that nutrition doesn't play a role
0: right yeah absolutely but i i think the um you know, just the the story around your curiosity for me, it was i was I was looking for a reason why, right? Like I needed the answer why? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so I, guess I started I- to kind of look into all aspects of my life. But I will tell you during all during my chemotherapy, we had Pizza Friday. chemotherapy was on Fridays, <laughs> and so we had pizza friday every every time I had chemo. Because they give you steroids and it makes you ravenously yep. hungry. And when you're yep. ravenously hungry, the best thing to eat is pizza. So go for it. Yep.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> You just
0: have to give it, yourself permission
1: sometimes. <laughs> totally, totally. It's like no judgment space of like, this is what my body needs right now, right? I'm a yeah. huge uh, proponent of like listening to your body. And, and part of that is like the the you know, familial aspect and like that communal aspect of what the pizza does, what it allows, like the cortisol levels drop. You're having fun with your family. You're enjoying it, right? It's so much more than just the pizza. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think that probably leads into my, my next question is, Um, What is, I mean, we've talked about kind of, you know, nutrition and our physical body and obviously, you know, illnesses and things like that. But what is cognitive nutrition? That's kind of a newer area. That's your specialty in some ways. So talk to me about that because it's, you know, this brain body connection, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that is cognitive nutrition. It is a mouthful. Um, But I am a cognitive nutritionist. That's what I call myself, which basically means that I'm using nutritional strategies to essentially enhance cognition and prevent cognitive decline down the road. Cognitive health, if we were to like, you know, expand the topic is essentially our ability to, you know, think clearly, to learn to remember things. And so cognitive nutrition is essentially using foods, using herbs, spices, you know, nutrients as a tool to enhance and protect those cognitive functions. And this is where it got really exciting about, you um, about six months or so ago, um, Arianna Huffington uh, invited me to, you know, come to Thrive to create a course. So we created this this course called Nourish to Thrive where we are getting into how we can eat to stay sharp and enhance our focus, you know, enhance our productivity, our creativity levels, um, you know, prevent that 2 p.m. slump that we all have mm-hmm. at the office and we still have when we're working from home. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, if we're packaging it as cognitive nutrition, it is, you know, it's looking at whole health nutrition, but with a focus on how, how do these things impact our cognitive health? Because oftentimes when we're thinking of nutrition, we are siloed into this idea that it's about our physical appearance or our physical, you know, in physical terms, so how it affects our weight, our cholesterol levels. And we rarely think about how it is affecting Things like our mood or our product, our focus levels, right? Our ability to prevent chronic disease down the line. And so that's really where we're getting into kind of the, the, the quote unquote, the meat of it, um, if you will, is like is, is um, finding a way to talk about nutrition through the lens of what it's doing to our brain.
0: Okay so let's talk about that. What like what is the connection between our diet and you know mental health and cognitive. When when you talk about cognitive health it's inclusive I assume of like our mental health but things like our mood, our ability to focus, all of those things that you just mentioned. So how does our diet affect those things?
1: Yes. Yeah. Great question. Um, This is, I mean, there's so many puns in nutrition and in nutritional science, but this is literally the bread and butter of what I do and what we do at Thrive. Um, So actually, there has been so much evidence that has accumulated in recent years linking nutrition with mental health that this new field of nutritional psychiatry has emerged with experts that are now agreeing that diet plays as important of a role to our mental health as it does to heart disease, as it does to diabetes. So for example, um, you know, there's one study that looked at the effect of dietary changes on depression. So half the study participants were given um, like nutritional counseling and instructed to, you know, coached to eat more vegetables, more um, fresh fruits, more. Uh, fish, olive oil, nuts and seeds. And then they were coached also to help to re- help them reduce their sweets and their processed foods. And the other half of those participants were um, given one-on-one social support. And after the course of 12 weeks, those with improvements to their diet showed significantly happier moods mm. than those who didn't. So there's definitely a link here that of course, the science is robust and growing, but I think there's a couple of themes at play here, um, and if you know, like we said before, this is much more complex than 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 we can just bucket in nutrition. But right. a couple of big themes at play here are metabolic health, gut health, and inflammation. Okay,
0: so let's dig into this. <laughs> Let, <laughs> let's talk about what does it mean to be, I I don't actually know what this means. What does it mean to be metabolically healthy? I mean, I think I can make make an assumption, but I'm probably wrong.
1: (laughs) You might be right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Metabolic, so yes. So it's a, it's kind of a, a broad overall term that a lot of people are kind of talking about. It's kind of trendy of a term these days, but we really don't know what it means. I think when we say like we're metabolically healthy or metabolically unhealthy or metabolic syndrome, right? These terms are kind of being thrown around. So essentially what it means to be metabolic or what metabolic health is describing is how well or how poorly we generate and process energy in the body. That's, That's it, right? It's about energy, how we make it how we store it, that's metabolic health. And
0: does that determine our metabolism?
1: So that will, you know, part of metabolism is, you know, is it running optimally Mm -hmm. or not? So we think of, you know, we tend to think of metabolism as this like static thing. I have a fast metabolism, I have a slow metabolism. Mm -hmm. But I like to think of it as you can call it metabolic health, you can call it metabolic fitness, just like you, you know, would go to the gym and like lift weights to like, increase your muscle, you know, your muscle mass and your 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 um, physical fitness, you can do things to help become more metabolically fit or metabolically healthy. So, uh, you know, metabolic health kind of if you're thinking of that as like the foundation, I like to call it, I like to think of it as like the foundation of whole health or true health. And the flip side of that is that poor metabolic health is associated with worse brain functioning, um, you know, lower energy levels, uh, worse memory, lower mood, and then later on, you know, higher risk for chronic disease. So uh, it is—it's pretty surprising. But about one in only about one in eight of us in the U.S. are metabolically healthy, kind of have optimal levels of of metabolism right those biomarkers of a healthy metabolism so we can all do things to help us encourage or promote healthy metabolism right we all could use a little bit of this this um education right something that we may not have gotten in school but it applies to all of us because we all eat right we all should take some sort of nutrition education and and learn a little bit more about metabolic health because it relates to all of us. So, one thing that we can do to help achieve, you know, more kind of improve our metabolic health is by considering what I like to call and what we call at Thrive the sugar roller coaster ride, right? So, if you're thinking of our day in terms of a sugar roller coaster ride, if we have toast and coffee in the morning, right? Maybe we kind of spike and it goes a little bit high and then you know, maybe if we have like a sugary snack in the afternoon, that helps us kind of lift us up. But then mo- a lot of us, I know I've definitely experienced this, will deal with that, you know, that crash later on, maybe like an hour or two after lunch, where we, you know, it's like the infamous 2 p.m. slump, where we ha- you know, find it hard to focus, find it hard to be creative. You know, this is the moment where I definitely like want to take, you know, if you're, I'm, if I'm working from home, then I, I want to kind of sit on, lay down on my couch and just kind of like, um, you know, ignore all the emails coming at me for like 30 minutes. Like, I just, you just can't handle it, right? You just, it's just one of those, th- that slump, right? That is the crash of the sugar roller ride. So, one of the best ways we can help to achieve metabolic fl- or metabolic health is by stabilizing that sugar roller ride. And, and we can do so by incorporating into our meals foods that act as, Uh, Sugar stabilizers. So that's any foods that contain fiber Mm -hmm. and/or good fats. So like um, nuts, non-starchy vegetables, spinach, broccoli, cauliflower. um, You know, asparagus, avocados that that contain both the good fat and the plenty of fiber. There's like 10 grams of fiber per avocado. So that's a good example. And all of these things are going to help to stabilize your are
0: And so do you eat those at the same time that you eat, you know, you know, at the same time as you eat the things that kind of might spike the the, the sugar that, roller? So that's a
1: great yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. So it doesn't mean that you don't that you, know, you can't have these things right. that are increasing your, you know, that are spiking your blood sugar. It just means that if you're looking at your plate and you see something like a piece of toast, um, you know that's going to, especially if it's like you know a simple carbohydrate that's going to um, increase your glucose or your your blood sugar more quickly relative nice to like a whole week. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. How can we yeah. look at the foods and the food pairings in a way that's going to smooth out your ride? So that's where kind of you know the this balance of foods plays a role and these pairings of foods. So if you're looking at your plate and you see. Something that you think, okay, what's what's my sugar rollercoaster ride going to look like if I just eat these foods? And maybe if you're seeing a spike, maybe if it's something like a simple carbohydrate, like um, bread or pasta, or you know, even if it's a dessert, like if you're having um, you know a slice of cake, this totally applies to a slice of cake. Have some nuts and sea or you know, put some walnuts. Either eat it before or or you know with the chocolate cake, but. Even when you're having a, cho- a piece of chocolate cake, wonderful, you know, enjoy that piece of chocolate cake. But if you're putting some nuts on on the side of it, you're going to help, uh, you know, inhibit that in in you know that extreme uh, uh, incline that will then you know start to inhibit that that sharp crash as well.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. And you mentioned glycemic index, and I feel like the glycemic index is like. I don't know, just this source of like confusion and mystery for so many yeah. people. So let's talk about like, what should we know about the glycemic index that like isn't confusing or hard to understand or weird to apply? <laughs>
1: for sure. Yes. It's like all of these headlines yes. about nutrition are so confusing. They all seem counterintuitive and, um, you know we kind of have to break it down and so the glycemic index let's just break it down real quick and say this is one lens through which to look at nutrition or at the nutrition of foods but it's not the whole picture so quick context what is it right glycemic index is a measure of how quickly a food increases your blood sugar right. And it's a rating. So each food has a rating. And if you're looking at it, it's going to have a rate, you know, a number between one and 100. 100 is just it's, it's you know, the, it's the high because that is what table sugar is. So table sugar has a glycemic index of 100. And so how, you know, what is the glycemic index of a certain food as compared to table sugar is kind of the way that they like to rate food. So you'll see, for example, um, you know, um, a piece of, uh, toast versus a piece of sourdough toast. Sourdough toast is lower in the glycemic index because it has that sour right part to it that lowers the glycemic index. But, um, you know, so essentially higher, the higher glycemic index, the food is the faster, the more it's going to put you on that sugar rollercoaster ride. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the lower it is, the more stable you're going to get your ride to be. Uh, But one caveat here is that you can have a food, uh, you know, that is low on the glycemic index that is not healthy. It's not painting the entire picture. So for example, you know, fried pork rinds are going to be a low glycemic index food. It doesn't mean that it's like, you know, a quote unquote health food. It's just not going to spike your blood sugar. So the comparison that I, I would give is like, you know pork rinds versus a sweet potato and there's you know many wonderful uh, you know nutritional benefits to a sweet potato but it is relatively higher in glycemic index so i like to use it as a tool of balance learning how to use the glycemic index to learn how to balance out your plate and pair foods, just like what we were talking about with the chocolate cake for that sweet potato, if we add some olive oil to a roasted sweet potato, if we have a side of, you know, roasted broccoli or, um, you know, something with, you know, plenty of good fat and fiber, what if the average of our plate becomes a lower average, you know, a lower glycemic en- uh, index average? That kind of, that's how I like to use the glycemic index to my advantage without Um, you know, without using it for kind of this end-all be-all of nutritional science.
0: Yeah. And where you went with the sweet potato, I was going to go with fruit because I feel like that's, at least for me, that's where I hear about the glycemic index. Like, oh, eat berries because they're low and don't eat, you know, citrus because they're high. Yep. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) know, So Uh, now we're kind of saying
0: like, oh, there's some fruit that's good and some fruit that's bad for you. So can you help demystify
1: that? (laughs) Yes, that's such a good question. I remember we were doing a webinar and someone held up an apple and a cupcake. And they were like, everyone's telling me that this is, you know, for, you know, for, for, um, for my, you know, purposes that the apple is, you know, equal is equivalent to the cupcake. Well, I like the cupcake better. So should I just have the cupcake? Can you tell me just to eat the cupcake? And I was like, okay, let's back up here, right? It's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But you're right that this idea of fruits having a relatively higher glycemic index, especially those of tropical fruits, plays a role. So if you are having, for example, citrus, right? If you're having an orange, yes. Um, the considerations are um, it's higher in glycemic index. Can you pair it? with something that is lower, so your average is in the middle. Um, And also, for any citrus, it's, you know, the more fiber, the better. So, you know, things like orange juice, and orange itself is going to have, you know, some sugar and some fiber. Um, If we pair it with nuts, or if we have that that orange after a meal, when we've just had some good fats and ideally some fiber in that meal, then it's going to it's not going to spark spike our blood sugar as quickly as if we're having it on an empty stomach versus Mm -hmm. if we're juicing it and we're putting a lot of oranges, but removing the pulp, then we are removing the thing that is going to stabilize our ride.
0: And you mentioned before um, when we were kind of talking about, you know, the connection between our diet and our cognitive health, our mental health, you, when we talked about, you know, being metabolically metabolically healthy, you also yeah. talked about gut health and the connection between gut health and our brain. And I wanted yeah. to come back to that because I feel yep. like that is getting a lot of attention now too.
1: Yeah, and, and rightfully so. And I'm so happy it is getting the yeah. attention that it deserves because it plays a, a tremendous role that not even, we, I would argue that we are, we're kind of like, on the, um, you know, just scratching the surface of how big a role our gut health plays in our cognitive health and in our overall health. Um, this is kind of the, you know, like we talk about like going to Mars, like understanding the gut um, is like, you know, this like this frontier in, in medicine and, and in functional medicine. And the reason being, so your gut contains actually about 500 million neurons, and that is second only to our brain. So it's earned itself, and rightfully so, this nickname of, quote, unquote, your second brain. Um, About 90% of serotonin, so, you know, that, that, quote, unquote, happy hormone, is produced in your gut. And this explosion of studies on this gut-brain connection has really, I mean... I don't want to, um, I don't think this is hyperbole to say that it's really revolutionized our understanding of these links between, you know, food and how we digest foods and mood and cognitive health. And it comes down to this idea that our gut and our brain are communicating with each other very closely, uh, much more closely than we realized in past decades. So when we say, you know, how that feeling like, um, when we're nervous, like if you're about to give um, a presentation to your boss, you're gonna have like these butterflies in your stomach, right? That kind of sense of like, I have butterflies in my stomach, that's, uh, that's a two way street, right? So when your gut is stressed, it is sending signals back to your brain. And when your brain is stressed, it is affecting your gut. So the gut contains both good and bad bacteria, right? The good bacteria help to produce neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine, which of course positively impact our mood. Um, And in fact, a lot of antidepressants increase the levels of those same compounds. And then we have bad bacteria, right? Which are gonna thrive on, unfortunately thrive on all those foods that as a kid I loved and, you know, truth be told, we still love, right? So um, these unhealthy sugars, you know, and, and processed foods, the, the bad bacteria feed off of that. And too much bad bacteria. We're always going to have some bad, ba- bad bacteria. And ideally, we're always going to have, you know, some good bacteria, unless, for example, we've just taken an antibiotic. But um, if we kind of built up our, our ecosystem, then we're going to have good and bad. And our job is to help to enhance the good and inhibit the growth of the bad. And we can do that in a few ways. So, um, and actually one of the things beyond nutrition um, to consider is stress. So it takes about two hours, all it takes is about two hours of kind of acute stress to completely change the bacteria, the ecosystem of bacteria living in our gut, which can then of course negatively impact our mood and our mental health, you know, not saying that nutrition is the only component, but it's a major component of the things that we can do to help to encourage the growth of the good and relieve, therefore relieving the stress in the gut and in turn in your brain. So for example, um, probiotics, right? A Little bit more trendy of a topic these days. Um, This is the, you know, probiotics are the beneficial bacteria in our gut that help to keep our intestinal lining intact. They help us digest foods. They help us absorb nutrients. And of course, a lot of them are, you know, help to make these neurotransmitters so they actually can improve cognitive function. And so probiotics, yes, you can find them on the shelves, but because you know, supplements are, are not really regulated. Um, right. And we don't really know, even with the best of intentions, a lot of, of a lot of these supplement companies, um, we, we just don't know if they're once they get to you, are they still going to be alive, and st- that bacteria alive. So some of them are great, right? It's, it's good to take a probiotic if you have a trustworthy, um, you know, uh, probiotic, but it's equally as important To ensure you're getting alive, you know, probiotics while they are still alive and thriving through food sources. So, for example, fermented foods like uh, sauerkraut, Um, you know, my husband is still kind of learning how to use sauerkraut. And so I still have to kind of hide it for him like he were a four-year-old in little sandwiches, um, but kind of adjusting your palate to sauerkraut or even yogurt, I- ensuring that the yogurt has live and active cultures or natto or tempeh, kimchi, right? Any kind of fermented foods are going to give you that that source of probiotic. And then we have the prebiotics. Um, they're equally as essential because they are helping to keep the good bacteria in your gut alive and thriving. So prebiotics are basically the food for the good gut bacteria. And prebiotics are found in this array of foods, so beans, berries, oats, garlic, onions, Dandelion greens, asparagus is another good one. Jicama is another great one for prebiotics. So good sources of prebiotics. So prebiotics, as as in the good food for your good gut bacteria.
0: I did that's so helpful. And I'm thinking every time you mention one of these foods, I'm like, okay, I eat that. I don't eat that. I eat that. Yeah. And I think equally as
1: important, is like, okay, what do I like? And what do yeah. I not like? Yeah. Right. So like for something like sauerkraut, it's so dense with probiotic. I like love I really sauerkraut. Am... I'm a weirdo. Okay, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Great. I kind of had to adjust. I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of need to adjust my palate over time. So I've kind of adjusted sauerkraut. But I also encourage my clients to like by of all the lists of probiotics, right? What what is like one or two that you don't have to eat all of them, but can we get like a few that yeah. you love in your meals a couple of times a week?
0: Okay, so it's, I was gonna say how often. So it's a couple times a week.
1: Yeah, if we can get a. a some source of fermented food in our diet a, a couple of times a week. I say, you know, if we're doing it every single day, I mean, you know, the more the better. Uh, if if we're having like a a, a small serving of sauerkraut on um, on you know on something, it doesn't necessarily have to be a wiener schnitzel, but I'm thinking <laughs> what, what it deserves, right? But like some source of probiotics daily, it's not going to hurt. But yeah. if we kind of like as a more feasible option, if we remember to do it four times a week, we're golden.
0: Got it. Okay. Super helpful. And, and let's also talk about, um, I mean, we hear a lot about associated with kind of gut health, um, inflammation and nutrition. Like talk about inflammation, like what kinds of food cause inflammation and perhaps that's different for, I don't know if it's yes. different for
1: different people or some people are yeah. more sensitive, that type of thing. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. And this is, so I'll say like, I'll, I'll back it up first and say that when we talk about the term inflammation, which is another area that people are really interested in yeah. and, and, and so happy that there is interest in this topic, but we have to remember that not all inflammation is bad. So if you mm. think about like acute inflammation, right, if you like, if you cut your finger, and you notice some redness some swelling at the area that's just your immune system you know at work that's essential to our, our survival right so in some ways in many ways inflammation it's a, an acute inflammation is essential to our survival what we're talking about what we're referring to is chronic inflammation and that is mm-hmm. essentially when your body is unable To eliminate the stimuli that it's fighting, or when there's this repeated exposure of something that's causing some sort of irritation. And there's a link between chronic inflammation and mental health issues like anxiety Mm -hmm. and depression. It's also, chronic inflammation is also recognized as an underlying basis of a number of age related diseases, including Alzheimer's. And so, food plays a huge role in that you can eat foods that help lower inflammation, right? Like, um, I always think of you know, the, the, the common example here is antioxidants. So any foods, any like produce that contains really beautiful colors, like, um, I, I always think of berries or like red cabbage, right? Those, the, that beautifully pigmented, deeply pigmented produce is, uh, is showing that it has these antioxidants in it. And that's going to help lower inflammation. And then we can help, we can also help to kind of suppress inflammation by just reducing those foods that can, um, you know, increase inflammation. So for example, um, they've shown in studies that those who consume foods higher in omega-6 fatty acids, so a type of polyunsaturated fat, Um, is, you know, we have your omega-3s, omega-6s, et cetera. And those who are eating foods with a ton of omega-6s without the omega-3s in their diet, so like cheese, red meat, corn oil, palm oil, um, these people have actually a higher risk of depression compared to those who are eating a diet, you know, pretty chock full of omega-3s. And I'll I'll put as as um, as an asterisk here that it's not necessarily about saying we need zero omega-6s. It's just that in our diet, we have a plethora of omega-6s, whether we want it or not. And we don't have that many uh, sources of omega-6s or of omega-3s, excuse me. So like, you know, not many people are eating fatty fish and a ton of walnuts. And so we kind of just (laughs) have to support those foods to increase and try to get a better ratio of the 6s and the 3s.
0: Right, right. Yeah. That's um uh, something I need to continue to think about. It.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, the, and you so you brought up a really interesting um point that has to do with inflammation before when we were talking about the sugar roller coaster ride, and that's this idea that inflammation is not only caused by a single food or like single categories, but also it you know, incredibly influenced by the pairings of mm. foods. Okay. So um, for example, saturated fat with eaten with a simple carbohydrate in the absence of fiber leads to hyperinflammation. So you can think of, for example, you know, um, a cheeseburger, right? That cheeseburger has some saturated fat and a soda, right? That's simple carbohydrate, that's sugar. And if you're eating a cheeseburger and a soda together, that's going to cause uh, you know some hyperinflammation, except, If you make a small change, right? If you're enjoying that burger, right? We all want to enjoy a burger every once in a while, but it's a veggie burger or, you know, regular burger. Um, We want to enjoy, you know, to the best of our extent. And by the way, you know, even a lot of these veggie burgers will have some saturated fat in them. Um, So if you're enjoying that burger with a soda, you know, can we get some? Uh, side salad on our plate? Can we get some nuts on our plate? Can we get some, you know, some roasted broccoli on our plate, like mm. the sweet potato, right? Is there a way that we can pair this delicious meal that's going to lead to hyperinflammation unless you pair it with some fiber?
0: Yeah. So it's it seems like fiber is like the magic.
1: <laughs> fiber really is, I would say, <laughs> I, I call fiber like the un, unsung superfood. Yes. <laughs> Of our, like we all kind of forget when we're talking about calories or when we're talking about, you know, MCTs and, you know, all of these kind of, um, trendy. Fiber fiber
0: seems to like, you know, neutralize things a little bit, right? Yes.
1: (laughs) I would say like throughout time fiber, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that we're eating, you know, if you're listening to this, it's not like we want to all of a sudden supplement with as much fiber as possible. Um, we, I would say, so the goal for fiber over time is between 30 and 50 grams daily, but a lot of us start with, you know, we're at like five or 10 grams daily. Mm. So yes, fiber is, you know, in, in, in my book, a superfood, but if we want to increase it, we want to do so very softly. So you want to start with adding, you know, some, some fiber with whatever sources that you like. Um, be it vegetables, be it, um, you know, some nuts and seeds, whatever, whatever your preference is, get it, you know, adjust uh, relatively slowly, because it is going to take some time for your gut and your microbiome to adjust to this, increased level of fiber you could
0: have like bloating and upset stomach exactly
1: if you exactly <laughs> be, yes fiber is in, incredibly important but sometimes especially with nutrition we tend to say more is better and we just kind of you know go at it and i would say it's great to be invested in increasing fiber let's do so thoughtfully over time
0: yeah, that's that's great advice because I know when I eat a very 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 heavy fiber <laughs> meal, yes. I uh, I'm like okay, <laughs>
1: my pants yeah. aren't
0: close now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like it's like a, a like a food coma. You have a baby, a food baby for a while. Yeah, so baby. one of the best th- yep, exactly. One of the best things to help to avoid that is water. So you know you have inflatable and you have soluble fiber, mm-hmm. and both are going to you know. Um, I tend to if you have if you're having too much too quickly can bloat but the insoluble fiber is going to kind of get stuck in your in the digestive tract if you are not doing enough to help kind of wash it down mm. and so while you're having this fiber make sure you are getting plenty of water on board um, and also it, it doesn't help when you have like an alcoholic drink that dehydrates us and you kind of even need even more water, but that's a good kind of rule of thumb. It's as you are increasing fiber, make sure you are having plenty of water alongside it.
0: Got it. Okay, great advice there. Um, I have so many more questions, and we're <laughs> running out of time. But I so cognitive nutrition. I want to get to this one, and I, I'm actually going to kind of combine two things. It's it's not just about what we eat. It's about mm. how we eat it. So how should we be eating? And then talk to me about the role that technology plays in our life and the impact it has on how we're eating.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is one of the, the major points is that it's not just about what, but also about how. Um, one of my favorite quotes from um uh, woman author uh, janine ross is the way you eat is the way you live reason can take it back mm-hmm. and say you know how we do anything is how we do everything right And if we were to apply that and think about our last meal and use that as this metaphor of how we're showing up in the world right what would that be telling us about our lives right now and it goes back to this idea that food is so much more than just food and food is also language right and you know what is this food telling us about what we need um, and it's very hard to listen to this language of food these days with so much background noise because most of us are not really in tune with or engaged with the meal the food that we are eating um, and I'm absolutely guilty of this as well, right? 88% of us in the U.S. are what's now being referred to as zombie eaters. So eating while looking at a screen. Yeah,
0: and I did that this morning over breakfast. There you go. Guilty.
1: Yeah, <laughs> We're all guilty of it sometimes. I think it's, it's, it's just part of our you know, modern society's structure. And we kind of tell ourselves this. Um, sometimes this lie that if we are simply eating, right, time taken to simply sit down and eat is time taken away from a more productive task. Like, I can send this email right now. Or even at the end of the day, if we're exhausted, right, there's no judgment. There's an uh, in, in, in that, right? We all kind of have built around our meal times multitasking. It's this and that. It's never just sitting down to mm-hmm. simply eat. So I would argue that it doesn't have to be every single meal, but if we can do it once per day, right? One screen-free meal a day as kind of your intro. And if, if that's really hard, let's try one screen-free meal per week, right? Of simply kind of thinking about it as this is an investment in my mental health. This is an investment in my future cognitive function, my productivity levels once I get up after this lunch, right? It's one of the best ways we can prevent burnout is by simply kind of allowing this time, be it, you know, 15 minutes even to just be about the meal and the senses. Yeah,
0: I love that. So, So uh, that sounds like a, you know, one, one of your favorite micro steps, right? So screen free meals, or at least one a day, or if you can't do that one a week, um, to start, but what are some of your other favorite micro steps for better cognitive nutrition?
1: Yeah. So, um, oh man, so many micro steps that we could talk about. (laughs) So, So my favorite. So, um, I think, you know, putting meal times on our calendar, I think it's a really helpful way to hold yourself accountable, but also to use that to send a signal to coworkers. Uh, I think this is especially important for leaders and managers to kind of, to set this good example, especially as we're working from home, right? When we need to cook ourselves, we, you know, it takes some time to prepare a meal, even if it's a simple meal, and then it takes some time to eat that meal. So putting, a block, even if it's 20 or 30 minutes on your calendar um, daily. And you can do it around you know, your, your other meetings, but make sure that you have some time where you know it is that, that is that time is for you, an investment in yourself uh, to be able to, you know, go back to what we were talking about before, have a meal time um, ideally a, away from your desk, away from the screen. So that's one of my favorites. Um, if we can try putting our phones away during mealtimes, one of my favorite games, this is from, um, pro basketball player Andre Iguadala. He plays the phone stacking game with his friends. So I do notice, you know, when I'm with my friends, we all have like our, our phones out on the table, right? And they're just mm. kind of sitting there. But if we play the stacking game, it's essentially what's required is that all the, all your friends kind of stack your phones stack their phones in the middle of the table and if you're out to eat then the game goes so the first person to reach for their phone
0: has to pay for dinner
1: (laughs) there you go that's it that's it yeah
0: (laughs) I love that one I'm gonna I'm gonna try that but I'm probably gonna lose so maybe I shouldn't try that
1: one (laughs) (laughs) unless you want to pick up the bill unless you're like ready with your credit card then yeah it's, it's it's Definitely, it's it's a more it's a higher investment for those who have like an important text that are or email that they're about to receive. And then I would say my probably my favorite micro step um, is it's really simple. It's kind of a small but mighty one, and that's just using gratitude at the very beginning. I think everyone can do this, even if you you know if if you don't have the the time to eat away from your um, from your desk, at the very least. If you think about one, two, like maximum three things that you are really grateful for that day, and it can even be like, I'm really grateful for this delicious meal that I'm about to eat, right? It can be as simple as that. But kind of tapping into that gratitude that's so powerful before you start the meal can shift this mindset to one of more mindfulness as you are eating that meal. So that's one of my favorite ones.
0: I love that one. And I am a huge fan of gratitude and can't think of a better way to end this podcast than saying, thank you, Tess. There's so much in here. Um, I, I mean, my my mind is is kind of spinning with all of the things that I've <laughs> learned <laughs> and all of the things that I need to do differently. Um, but so much gratitude for you um, and all of the wisdom that you shared with us
1: today. Oh, thank, thank you so much for having me. It's really been, it's been an honor and a pleasure to be here. We all have room for improvement, myself included. So it's, it's just a journey. We're all on a non-linear journey and it's always better to do it you know together.
0: I'm so grateful Tess could be with us today to talk about this important topic. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword work well, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at genfish 23 We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services. Furthermore, the information contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have specific concerns about your own or your family's health or well-being, we encourage you to carefully research and seek out additional consultation with a qualified, licensed medical professional in good standing.